Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, February 6th, 2021, and uh, there's a lot of talk about Ukraine today and Russia and China and the Olympics and Republicans, so we are going to dive straight into it. But first, Naomi, the shows that I covered and looked at this week were Fox News Sunday, hosted by Martha McCallum, again, you know, continuing that revolving door of different Fox News hosts hosting in the absence of our dear Chris Wallace, who is getting ready to go into the streaming world. Dear Chris Wallace is a bit much, but yes, we enjoyed (laughs) covering his work. Uh, I also looked at Chuck Todd hosting Meet the Press, and I looked at Jake Tapper hosting State of the Union. How about you? So I looked at This Week on ABC, which was hosted by Martha Raddatz, and I also looked at Face the Nation, which was hosted by Margaret Brennan, of course. All right, Naomi, let's get into Quality Questionable. Did you have a quality or questionable moment today? Yeah, so my quality moment was something I saw on Face the Nation. It's... We have noted before how Margaret Brennan asks really important questions about COVID and about the pandemic, specifically how it relates to children and parents. Um, Often those experiences are missing when we talk about how to live with a pandemic or new mitigations that are coming into place. So that, that part's not new, but Today, we saw it in a focus group specifically for parents or specifically of parents. And I've knocked her before saying Margaret Brennan doesn't does focus doesn't do focus groups very well. So yeah, that I was want, like last week, I think. Maybe it was recent, whatever. Yeah. But so I wanted to kind of commend this specific effort because it was executed quite well. Take a f- listen to a few clips of some powerful experiences that Margaret Brennan shared on today's episode of Face the Nation. Alejandra, your children are a little bit older. What was your conversation about the need to get vaccinated or not? My kids are, <clears throat> my kids really are really prudent, urging on the hypochondriac. So they got <laughs> vaccinated as soon as they were eligible. I didn't have to push them at all. If anything, they pushed me. And I mean, how did that make you feel as a parent? It made me feel safer. We were not, given their ages, I wasn't worried about them dying of COVID, but I was worried about them having the flu from hell and then having any long-term consequences of that flu from hell. When you hear the term children are resilient, do you think that's a positive way of characterizing things or does it anger you a little bit? It's not that I don't think children are resilient. Um, I just think sometimes there's such a focus on them being resilient and having grit that they don't get a chance to like actually feel their emotions because they're too busy shoving them down to show grit 
and resilience. Um, they're very young. They don't have a lot of memories, but they do have, they, they, there are subconscious things that stick with them. They're going to need to feel their feelings and mm-hmm. we're going to need to give them the grace to do so. All of you feel like your emotional health has been impacted by COVID? Show of hands. All of you do. Do you think that impacts your ability to parent? The CDC kept saying that's that's how you protect your child is you make sure everybody around them is vaxxed and boosted because neither of my kids grandmothers will get vaccinated. Um, So they haven't seen her since she was a year old. It was it it was a hard conversation to have with my own mother, I must say. And then there came Omicron and it didn't seem to matter that we were vaccinated and boosted. It was coming for you anyway. And so now that's part of the paranoia almost right now. Yes, I'm going to get Marcy vaccinated as soon as possible. But now I don't think of the vaccine as the way out anymore. Wow. She's really bringing the conversations we've been having right there to the show. Absolutely. And I think she also did a really good job. I didn't include any of the context of how old some of the kids were of these uh, focus group participants. But we had everything from, you know, daycare centers to teenagers to, you know, elementary school, even kids or young adults going into college and the mental health impacts of that age group. And so, you know, nobody's immune, I think, to the mental health and the emotional and physical challenges of COVID. But it was such such an empathetic and generous way to just share with how parents are feeling and kind of how they're struggling and how valid those experiences are. Yeah, this is this is really insightful and such a turn from the terrible focus grouping we saw just a few weeks ago. Absolutely. Brendan, did you have a quality or questionable? Yeah, I had a questionable. This was on, basically, it was a top interview build on State of the Union. It was a bipartisan love fest between Joe Manchin and Lisa Murkowski. And I want to be clear, this isn't Joe Manchin and Lisa Murkowski. That's not why I'm using the word love fest, although they do profess great affection for each other as co-workers. But what I mean is there is a fetishization of bipartisanship among the Sunday Show hosts, we see it pretty frequently on Chuck Todd's program, and it's right here on State of the Union, front and center this week. So I'm going to play a little bit of this and then give you some of my thoughts. So here, what you will be first hearing is Jake Tapper's introduction to the segment, which gives you a sense of how it was characterized. And then you'll hear from Joe Manchin talking about how he approaches bipartisanship and why he thinks it's so great. And then you'll hear at the end here, Joe Manchin describing why he chooses to endorse Republicans for the Senate and not Democrats if he's buddy-buddy with them. In the past several weeks, we have featured bipartisan conversations on the show. And this morning, we're going to take on the very idea of unity in a very special conversation, an exclusive interview with two of the most powerful senators in Washington, Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, who is here for her first Sunday show in more than five years and has bucked the majority in her party on issues from health care to the Supreme Court, along with Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who has been one of the deciding votes on much of the Biden agenda. They're both here today for a substantive conversation on bipartisanship 
And whether that idea, which is both revered and reviled in politics, bipartisanship, is still possible in today's Washington. The bipartisan 908 bill. Mm -hmm. We did that because we said something has to be done. So all we did was take the practical approach with friends who could talk to each other and look exactly what the country needed, our states and our country, but the country first. And we did that and worked at it, and we broke down our groups, took our, what we had interest in, what we had some expertise in, and brought it all together. And then they took it from there, put it up, and we voted for it. The only thing I've said, it's hypocritical to basically work with a person day in and day out, and then when they're in cycle, you're supposed to be against them because they have an R or a D by their name. If these are good people I've worked with, we have accomplished a lot, why in the world wouldn't I want to work with them and continue to work with them? It doesn't matter whether I'm a Democrat and they're Republican or vice versa. They've been my dear friends and we get a lot accomplished and we, I think the country has fared better with us working together than not. So I think it's perfectly fine to talk about the concept of bipartisanship, to do as Jake Tapper seems to promise in this introduction, to talk about whether... The idea, which is both revered and reviled in politics, is still possible in today's Washington. But that's not really what this conversation is about. What this conversation is about is about giving Joe Manchin and Leach Murkowski a platform to rebuild their reputations, to showcase their everything that they think is amazing about what they do, and not really to hit them on any difficult, critical questions. There was very little critical questions about their choices, their direction, why they're doing what they're doing. And there are plenty of critical questions that one would maybe want to ask either of these senators, you know? And not even talking about just the questions about Manchin's decisions around Build Back Better, which were very briefly touched on mostly around the area of whether Build Back Better was dead or not. But why didn't Jake Tapper ask them, if if they're so all about bipartisanship and not about their particular political party, then, like, why have a party affiliation at all? What does that party affiliation mean to you? What does it mean to be a Republican, Lisa Murkowski? What does it mean to be a Democrat? And how do you balance your responsibilities as members of these parties with your efforts to get things done? How do you balance the wishes of those who voted to elect you with your choices for bipartisanship? Sometimes these things are in conflict and they need to be addressed. None of that is talked about in this interview. This is the type of artificial pride and praise that like makes my skin crawl because it's like claiming you're exploring this important need for bipartisanship without having that examining or having the rigor of like, well, where did this important these important bipartisanship values come from if your party is not for them or that your party is not valuing them? Or how do you get other people to care about it if it's so supposedly supposedly so so important to you? Right. Or or even the consistency of it. And the yes. productivity of yes. it, because their strategy for bipartisanship has not been very fruitful. So why should we care about it? Why should we care about the thing that is stalling <laughs> any legislative accomplishments, whether that's from Democrats or Republicans? It's not like Trump's Congress got a lot done either. Right. So it's <laughs> it's just like, damn, like people love trying to make themselves feel good. Like, right. 
people want to feel good about themselves i want you to like applaud them for nothing like we're doing nothing productive right and that's and like it's great and we are such great people for and that. that's the other thing i was like there was no qu- pressing question about the failure of the senate to get anything done or passed yeah like no real discussion of that and and what role these groups or these individuals have in holding up legislation right and because they here this whole segment is about celebrating them for crossing the aisle to get things done but these individuals are also responsible for stopping a lot of legislative accomplishments. Absolutely. And again, you don't have to look at it with the singular lens of like the Biden administration. You just look at the last 25 years and the Senate does less and less and less and less. And so how is your holding on to bipartisanship helping with that? Right. And, you know, he talks, he introduces them as some of the most powerful people because they buck their party and yet it's supposed to be about unity. Well, at the same time, Tapper and other Sunday show hosts talk about disunity among the Democrats whenever Joe Manchin doesn't do what the Democrats want, right? Or disunity among Republicans whenever Lisa Murkowski or other Republicans don't do what other Republicans want. So it's like you can define unity in whatever way you want here, right? Somehow Joe Manchin's all about unity with the other side but then at the same time that's you know what i mean like it's it's just like what 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 spin on the story are you using right now right how does it serve your purposes now and i also like why not ask these people critical questions too like are there any issues that you believe in strongly enough that you you think it's worth voting on in a party line vote yes or no one thing that was interesting that I did like uh, getting an answer on was Joe Manchin, like, why why is Build Back better, better done? Why didn't it work? And Manchin's answer was, well, the process. There was a problem with the process. The process wasn't open to Republicans, and it should have been. And it's like, but you, Manchin, engaged in that process for like six months, and now you say that wasn't fair? Well, well then why did you do it, right? Like, it's not like this process had nothing to do with you. It was all about you. So how is that the issue? Again, no critical questions for either of these. It was, again, just providing them a platform to shower them with praise, essentially, for being, quote unquote, bipartisan. What would have been nice is to like put up on the screen all the policies that never became reality on either side because of each of these individuals. But again, this was not a critical interview. But it was the number one interview, the top interview of the show. And as Tapper explained, an exclusive. And I should, I I almost want to like look at like anyone who claims like an exclusive interview that didn't do any meaningful prep and research in interviewing those candidates or, or those guests should be stripped from the ability to say exclusive interview. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting you say that because a lot of times they're exclusives because they're with someone who's not going to give them a hard time, right? Right, exactly. It's almost like you should almost turn away from exclusive interviews because they're more likely than not to be pretty soft peddling. Yeah, I think that's fair. A, a fair assumption to make. All right, Naomi, well, let's get to the top story. What were you covering today? So I am planning on talking about Ukraine. 
Specifically, I feel like the questions and the focus of the interviews that are very Ukraine specific have really improved. I think we're seeing a lot more clarity and specificity in those questions. And I think that's a real improvement from a few weeks ago. So I kind of just wanted to show a few examples of that and how if you're following the story now, you might actually learn a heck of a lot more than if you were to follow this story on the Sunday shows early to mid-January. That's very interesting because I'm also focused on questions regarding Ukraine, but mine is a little more skeptical of where those questions are coming from, particularly from Fox News. Sure. And I do have a big asterisk at the end of my segment about what's missing. All right. So I wanted to start. (laughs) I wanted to start specifically on this week. Martha Raddatz loves talking about global stories. War stories are her jam. And so not surprised that she actually had a really great interview with Jake Sullivan, the White House National Security Advisor. And, you know, she kind of just started right off the bat trying to understand, like, what's the likelihood of Russia invading Ukraine at this point? Really startling predictions this morning. ABC and others being told that Putin now has 70 percent of his troops in place to possibly launch a full scale attack on Ukraine. The Ukrainians may not believe that, but how likely is that? Uh, We believe that there is a very distinct possibility that Vladimir Putin will order an attack on Ukraine. Uh, It could take a number of different forms. It could happen as soon as tomorrow or it could take some weeks yet. Uh, He has put himself in a position with military deployments uh, to be able to act aggressively against Ukraine at any time now. And we are working hard to rally our allies, to provide material support to the Ukrainians to reinforce our eastern allies, in particular Poland and Romania and the Baltic states, uh, and at the same time to send a clear message message to Russia that we are prepared to walk the diplomatic path to address our mutual security concerns if they're prepared to do so. Either way, Martha, we are ready. So I thought that was, you know, just really helpful to hear, specifically the fact that Putin has 70% of his troops in place for a full-scale attack on Ukraine but that from the Biden's perspective, they are ready for both an escalation possibly or continuing the path of diplomacy and really trying to kind of have strong language and strong actions that could make either one of those scenarios successful. Yeah, well, it seems like it's important for the White House to be able to say, okay, yes, here's a fact about how ready Putin is. Well, we're even more ready than that. We're 100% ready for what's to come. Speaking of more ready, Martha Raddatz was pretty skeptical that the U.S. is really committed to de-escalation. Take a listen. You talk about this diplomatic path, but 1,700 U.S. troops just arrived in Poland, part of the 3,000 going in, 300 more sent to Germany. The 18th Airborne Corps said these are combat-capable forces who stand ready to enhance NATO's ability to deter and defeat Russian aggression. They're a long way from Russia's border. That sounds like you're no longer trying to de-escalate the situation. We have, since the beginning, for months now, as we have warned about the possibility of a Russian invasion of Ukraine, pursued a two-track approach, deterrence 
and diplomacy, and there's nothing inconsistent about the two of them. In fact, we believe that deterrence reinforces diplomacy. Those forces you just referred to have not been sent to fight Russian forces in Ukraine. They have been sent to defend NATO territory because we have a sacred obligation under Article 5 to defend our NATO allies and to send a clear message to Russia that if it tries to take any military action or aggression against our NATO allies, it will be met with a stiff response, including by the U.S. forces who are on the, on the ground there now. But we have been equally clear, as you've seen from the paper that we sent to the Russians that, that's now been published publicly, uh, that we are ready to have substantive discussions on matters of European security in the mutual interests of us, our NATO allies in Russia, and we're ready to do that at the table with the Russians if that's the choice they make. If they make an alternative choice, as I said before, we're ready for that, too. So I think here we see that the Biden administration is willing to kind of be more specific in how they're ready for both potential paths, one of aggression and invasion by Russia into Ukraine and making sure that NATO troops and NATO lands are protected and ready and also. And, and that there are sanctions in place, but also that they're willing to kind of that none of that pr- preparation dismisses diplomacy as a viable option. Right. That like one does not trump the other. Yes. Yeah. Very good detail there. I think in general, Jake Sullivan did a really excellent job today in this interview. There's been other stories, so I'm thinking specifically in Afghanistan, that I think he really fumbled quite a bit. And we're not seeing that now while all this kind of drama is happening on the Ukraine border, there's been a very strategic demonstration by Putin to kind of sidle up to China to show that, hey, like we can potentially support mutual interests and also kind of have each other's backs, essentially, right, Mm -hmm. against the U.S. and also against NATO. There were two clips that I wanted to show that kind of explored this. The first one is in the interview with Jake Sullivan, on this week and the next one i'm just going to play right afterward is actually on face the nation with wally Ariyamo. he is the deputy treasury secretary of the united states and so it was really interesting hearing one kind of from like a security angle and another one from kind of like a financial angle oh yeah let's take a listen because i i go into a bit of this as well sounds great We saw vladimir putin at the olympics this week standing next to president xi That is an economic powerhouse, China. Could that undermine your plans for severe sanctions? Our view is that China is not in a position to compensate Russia for the economic losses that would come from our sanctions. That's the analysis that we and the Europeans share, and we believe that Russians and Chinese understand that as well. Uh, We also believe that uh, when it comes down to it, ultimately, if Russia does choose to move forward, And not only will it come at strategic cost to Russia, but if China is seen as having supported it, it will come at some cost to China as well in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of Europe, uh, and in the eyes of other countries who are looking on now and sending a clear message that they would prefer to see diplomacy over war here. Can U.S. and Western sanctions be if Russia is just going to move closer to China, as we're seeing? So, Margaret, I was in the Obama administration in 2014 when we took actions against 
uh, Russia in response to their invasion of Ukraine. We've learned a great deal of lessons. And what I can tell you is the actions that we would take if Russia were to invade Ukraine this time would be far more significant. Mm -hmm. And it's up to President Putin if he wants to become dependent on China going forward. But what I'll tell you is that China can't give Russia what they don't have. There are critical technologies that Russia is dependent on the United States and our allies on, technologies that Russia, that China does not have access to. Russian elites, who we would cut off from the global financial system, are not putting their money in China. They're putting their money in Europe and in the United States. And those elites, those who are helping President Putin make these decisions, we would cut them and their families off from the global financial system in ways that would limit their ability to do business in the ways they've done it in the past. Yeah, that economic perspective is really interesting and uh, provides a lot more color to what this means. Right, because you see Jake Sullivan just say, this isn't worth it for China to actually take this risk on for Russia. Okay, that I guess those are technically words that are coming out of his mouth, but it's not saying a heck of a whole lot. <laughs> but when you hear the Deputy Treasury Secretary kind of give some color, you know, the fact that he was part of the decision-making team that decided about the sanctions that went in after 2014 to Russia and saying like, listen, I was there and I know what we're proposing now is way worse. And we have a very specific idea of the people we would be targeting and how it would hurt. And ultimately we're going after things that China can't cover for, like very strategically, right? right? And so it gives a heck of a lot more color in trying to understand how these like, you know, mystery, harsher sanctions are developed to compensate for all of these potential cover that Russia is seeking from China. Yeah, absolutely. But as you mentioned, Brendan, I think the financial angle of this story is, it's just really, I mean, fascinating sounds a little like inhumane, but it's an important angle because it impacts so many different countries, so many different economies, indirectly, potentially, and it we really haven't seen it really talked about on the Sunday shows, really. We've talked about how, you know, Biden administration officials have said that there will be strict sanctions if Russia invades Ukraine, but there hasn't been like a real talk about what this means for Europe, what this means for us in terms of kind of like an economic blowback. Right. I mean, we talked a little bit about Germany's, the impact on Germany. Yeah, and I'm going to talk about that too. Yeah. So take a listen to this next clip again with Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adeyamo, where Margaret Brennan asks him about the potential impact of refugees spreading across Europe. We've been talking about this latest intelligence shows Russia uh, has all these forces mounted and could launch this large scale, full scale invasion the impact would be huge in terms of refugee crisis and casualties. What would the impact of the global economy be? So, Margaret, I'm, of course, not going to talk about the intelligence, but I want to talk about what we plan to do if Russia were to invade. Um, When we started seeing Russian troops amass near the Ukrainian border, the president asked Secretary Yellen and I to start having conversations with our allies in Europe Mm -hmm. to ensure that we would be in a place where we could launch economic sanctions against Russia if they were to invade. We have designed a set of economic sanctions that would take on the Russian financial system, limit President Putin's ability to project power into the future by cutting them off from key technologies and cutting off key elites from the Russian economy. To your question of what would be the impact on the global economy if Russia were to invade, we're already starting to see it. The Russian economy is already suffering from the from the 
from the moment that President Putin started to take these actions. The ruble is having the worst performance of among, among emerging economies thus far this year. You're looking at their borrowing cost increase. Mm -hmm. And what we would see is we would see Russia's economy suffer if they were to take an action to invade Ukraine. This is very interesting, talking about the impact now on Russia's economy and how severe it could be in the future. Were there any discussions about how long that impact might persist? I'm kind of curious. Not really, but I think the thinking has been is it's really dependent on the next what happens economically and also militarily is dependent on what Putin does the next few weeks. That makes sense. Yeah. And so I just the angle in which Margaret Brennan is asking these questions, it just feels very kind of refreshing. And again, exploring a new conversation. First time I've heard really looking at the financial impact globally of this growing escalation. There was also, I thought, really good, precise questions about the role of Germany. Germany has come up in other interviews, specifically the Nord Stream 2, the gas line pipeline that Russia would be providing to Germany, and that being really a source of Germany's reticence to being more aggressive against Russia. And Margaret Brennan kind of makes the question explicit, like, how weak of a link is Germany here? Germany is very tied to the Russian economy. We know the German chancellor is sitting down with President Biden tomorrow. Are they the weakest link in this united front you're trying to forge? And Nord Stream 2 and sanctions, those seem to be inevitable at this point? Margaret, we've worked very closely with the German government. As you know, the new chancellor in Germany used to be the finance ministry. Um, where I spent a great deal of time talking to his colleagues and the Germans have worked with us closely in terms of building the sanctions package we would implement if Russia were to take these actions. They've helped produce ideas that are part of the things that we would implement to that point. What I can say about Nord Stream 2 is that if Russia were to invade Ukraine, Nord Stream 2 would never go online. Mm -hmm. um, in addition to working closely with Germany, we work closely with the EU and a divide is designed a range of sanctions that would have significant impact on the Russian economy. It's important to, while we oppose Nord Stream 2, the key for us is making sure that we take far more significant actions in addition to Nord Stream 2 in order to make sure that the Russian economy suffers the consequences if Russia decides to invade. Mm -hmm. But as I've said, the choice belongs to President Putin. He can choose the path of diplomacy and dialogue or choose a path that leads to the Russian economy suffering not only for tomorrow, but suffering over the long term and limiting his ability to project power into the future. I think they probably should have this financial person on saying things like this more frequently if their goal is to deter Putin from moving forward, because it sounds very serious. It's almost like when like an accountant or someone from the IRS speaks, you like you, you perk up and listen. And when they use words like this, you're like, oh, crap, I don't think there's any way to wiggle out of this one. Right. It's like when someone, you know, it's like your your financial books look sketchy. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, you didn't pay taxes this year, this year, and this year. And it's like, oh, you really know, <laughs> right? There's a level of depth and specificity here that clearly the Treasury Department is willing to kind of make explicit in a way that the National Security Advisor directly from the White House has not been as, has not been authorized to be. Yeah. Diplomacy is always a little squishy. And I feel like this is very much like, oh, this will happen. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's true because I think probably the Secretary of State and Blinken has not been this specific either. Yeah. And again, he's not saying here's the exact thing that will happen, but he's talking about the consequences in a very serious way. 
And I just wanted to close this segment with, I thought, <laughs> I don't know, just like a very, very interesting take by Susan Glasser on the panel on this week. Susan Glasser was a kind of bureau chief in Moscow for a very long time. She has covered Putin and Russian politics for a long time in her previous beats. But I thought, I thought she had a really interesting take about like, Whatever happens, Putin's already winning. And Susan, you've really been following Russia uh, for many, many years. You lived in Moscow. What do you see in terms of Vladimir Putin? We talked a little bit about how he's all about force and, and all about power. So how does he possibly get out of this? Well, he may not want to get out of this, Martha. I mean, you know, there is a scenario here that we have to understand in which Putin feels that either way, uh, he may benefit from this. First of all, uh, we're doing a remarkable thing, which is often talking about Putin's demands rather than looking at the fact that he has created and manufactured this crisis. He sent an invasion force of 130,000 uh, Russian troops to the border of his neighbor. He himself has basically single-handedly uh, destabilized European security and arguably geopolitical security. That's not because of any action that Ukraine took. It's not because of any action that the United States or NATO took. And yet, here we are talking, and he's, he's very successful. It's an old Soviet playbook in many ways to get allies. Here we are arguing, right, uh, on shows like this about, well, did NATO do something? Is it provocative? Should we roll back the thing? Why? The answer is why? And it. it's all about Vladimir Putin. But it's also, he has a, almost an emotional attachment. Go back and read. I recommend this to everybody. Read the document that Vladimir Putin wrote and circulated to every member of the Russian military this summer in which he says that Ukraine basically doesn't have a right to exist as an independent nation. It's hard to negotiate with that. Just a very interesting reality check um, here, kind of clearing up, I don't know, the fog on everyone's glasses. <laughs> it feels like to say, like, this is what Russia wants. This None of this is by accident. Not to, I mean, the, the parallel is crystal clear. I'm not even going to deny it. Like, this is Trump. Like, Trump does this exact thing. Like, if people are talking about Trump, like, he manufactures these crises for himself, but then he's the topic of conversation all the time. And when slowly it's not about him anymore, when things start shifting, bam, there's some new crisis, just so it can be all about him. Totally, totally. So I just... Except Trump doesn't have, like, decades of KGB experience and training <laughs> yeah. to, like, Thank execute God. really, really... Like serious dangerous to do things. Yeah. <laughs> so I just kinda want to acknowledge things that are still missing, I think, in this coverage of Ukraine. I think we're not seeing enough subject matter experts that are kind of in political roles. I did see HR McMaster, but at the end he was kind of you know, appointed by Trump and has a political angle too. And remind us who he is. He was one of President Trump's national security security advisors. Trump went through a lot <laughs> of them. He, McMaster was one of them and was ultimately fired because he disagreed with Trump on, I can't even remember what at the time. But in general, I think there should, there, there's plenty of experts who've been following, you know, Russian diplomacy and Russian politics and kind of the relationship between the U.S. and Russia. And we could be hearing a lot more from them. We're also not hearing from people who are essentially like aren't war hawks or aren't Republicans who can help us understand and meaningfully criticize 
Biden's diplomacy efforts. Right, from other perspectives. From other perspectives, yeah. So essentially the only perspective we have is this is what Biden is doing, and then they put out some Republican as a countervoice saying, this is all wrong. Their strategy is dumb. We're allowing Putin to do this. And that's kind of the only two angles that we've really been seeing, which is a real disservice to understanding, you know, again, the quality and the effectiveness of Biden's diplomacy efforts. And if this gets worse... We're going to all feel really dumb because we're going to be blindsided by like, we didn't know how close this was going. You know, this is what things that have happened before. This is what other countries would have done in responding to Putin or whatever. And we haven't been seeing that in the shows. So hopefully that's coming real soon. Well, well yeah, we're going to have to watch how that develops. But before we do, I had some things to say about what I heard on Fox News Sunday, which is very different. Yeah, it sounded like you had a lot of Ukraine coverage as well. Yeah, and I wanted to focus in on Martha McCallum. You know, like I said, she hosted Fox News Sunday this week. And, you know, we briefly considered, should we be covering this, shouldn't we, with uh, some of the hosting that has been more than subpar, very poor on Fox News Sunday. But McCallum, you know, has a legitimate uh, journalism background, worked for NBC News for quite a while, and uh, has been, you know, worked for the Wall Street Journal for a bit. So she does have some real news chops. And the bookings were were real bookings, right? She had Jake Sullivan on as well. So I want to kind of look at this interview with Jake Sullivan. And it was kind of interesting to me because I, I, Maybe you can help me think through my my perspective on the interview. Part of it is, oh, McCallum is asking questions that like anybody who's maybe not super familiar with the story might be asking. Like, I feel like she's acting as a good surrogate for the viewer who doesn't know really what's going on or has maybe heard a few things and doesn't quite quite get it. And here, we're, here's the National Security Advisor here to answer these questions and maybe even correct some of the premises of the questions. But at the other side of it, I'm like, yeah, maybe you could see her as an advocate for the viewer. But also all these questions, as we've seen time and time again on Fox News Sunday, seem to be based in some sort of Republican anti-Biden talking point. And that's where it gets a little repetitive and a little frustrating and kind of you get the sense that sometimes the questions are just totally wrong. You know, it's like it's not even who is it that said like so bad it's not even wrong like it's it's like so off the map but but that's kind of the territory we approach here it seems so let's begin with what i thought felt like an important question and a and a meaningful one for this administration when we're talking about capital cities that might be under threat i I think everyone you know it's fresh in everyone's memory the quicker than expected fall of Kabul in Afghanistan. So I guess my question is, when you've got troops, U.S. troops that are sent to NATO states, but none sent to Ukraine, I mean, that's a real possibility that we could be sitting here talking in a few weeks and saying, gee, that was faster than we expected, but we don't have anybody in country and too bad. The president has been clear for months now that the United States is not sending forces to start a war or fight a war with Russia in Ukraine. We have sent forces to Europe to defend NATO territory. We have a sacred obligation 
under Article 5 to defend our NATO allies, Poland and Romania and the Baltic states. We have made that commitment to them. We will keep that commitment to them. What we can do for the Ukrainians is not send American troops to fight in a war in Ukraine, but we can send defensive assistance, which we have done to the tune of more than half a billion dollars over the course of the past year. And we can provide other forms of support alongside our allies and partners. We have done that as well. We have been clear from the start about the steps that we are prepared to take. And whatever action Russia uh, undertakes next, the United States is ready. So this is, I do think it's important for this to be stressed, for especially for people at home, because there's so much talk about Ukraine. There's talk about forces, invasions, NATO, the U.S., people are involved, and people, you know, the general public who's kind of following this, half following this, might get the sense, if it's not repeated like it was in this question again and again, the U.S. is not going to war in Ukraine. It is not happening. Doesn't matter what Russia does, we are not sending troops to Ukraine. But that probably should be underscored a little more often than it is, just to remind people that that is not what we're talking about here. There may be a war in Ukraine. The U.S. is not sending troops there. Also, the comparison to Kabul seems very different in comparison to a country invading another country, and that's why the capital would fall. Right. And also what our responsibility in that country would be very different in Afghanistan versus Ukraine. And so that's kind of missing from McCollum's kind of question here. The context or the difference. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just kind of anticipating Biden to be slow on a situation that is very different. It just seems very strange. Without that context, the only thing you are flaming, essentially, McCollum here is flaming, is that. Fox viewers think Biden is weak on the military, weak on defense, and weak on aggression, and that he's going to be weak again in Ukraine. Right, right. That's what that's could be read the con- into, yeah, yeah, that's that's the thread she's kind of sewing here, not actual, like, real strategic strategy. Right. Well, and kind of speaking of that perspective, that kind of gets me to the next clip here, which is a discussion of Germany and German troops. And... As we've discussed, you know, Germany has that pipeline with Russia. The idea was that they would, the pipeline would bring in critical energy resources to Europe and Germany in particular. McCallum here seems to pick up this thread of thinking that felt like it had its root in the Donald Trump rationale, which is why are we having troops stationed in Germany when Germany isn't doing anything for us, right? Why are we giving them troops? And here's this same question rearing its head and Jake Sullivan having to correct the basic premise of the question. Why not move more of our troops from Germany? Germany has really been on the sidelines in this. They have uh, large energy deals with Russia. They're not giving any lethal aid to Ukraine. So we have 30 to 50,000 troops in Germany. I think a lot of people look at this situation and they remember some of the proposals in the prior administration and say, why aren't we, why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we moving those troops to NATO to our stronger allies than Germany at this moment? Well, first of all, we have been coordinating closely with Germany in advance of the chancellor's visit to Washington tomorrow on a swift and severe package of sanctions that the United States and Europe would both impose on Russia in the event of an invasion of Ukraine. And Germany has been working with us on that. Second, while it's true that Germany has not sent arms to Ukraine after the United States, they are the second largest donor to Ukraine in Europe. 
But the bottom line is this. The reason that we are able to swiftly move a battalion into Romania to reinforce uh, the and reassure our ally Romania is because those forces were stationed in Germany. Having forces stationed in Germany is in fact a strategic asset to the United States because not only can they help defend German territory, but they can be moved to our allies in the east to reinforce, reassure, and deter Russia. And that puts the United States in a stronger position to stand up to Russian military aggression. So pretty much at every level, Jake Sullivan knocks down this question. But the basic premise of why are we giving Germany these troops when they're not really helping us is completely wrong. Like, we're not giving them the troops. The troops aren't really there for Germany. They're there for U.S. strategic purposes. They're not like a gift to Germany. They're like serving our needs as America. And also Germany has done a lot for Ukraine, too, as Jake Sullivan underscores here. And what people should know when they're feeling critical about this Germany whole situation is Germany is the most powerful economy in Europe by a long shot. Like the economy that is number two, like behind Germany is the UK and Germany is more than 25% bigger. No, no, more than 30 percent bigger than the UK. Like, they're just significantly bigger than the economy of the United Kingdom. They're, in fact, the fourth biggest economy in the world. So they're really important. This has me thinking about some of the comments I've heard from some of the Republican criticisms of Biden's strategy, where they say that, like, Biden approved of the Nord Stream 2, or that Biden is allowing Putin to have this you know gas pipeline into europe and it's just like germany is a power player in europe and so far hasn't been completely on board with everything that biden is doing like it's just it kind of completely whitewashes the role the very tricky role of collaborating and being diplomatic to russia through germany right and that there's like multiple angles here and i think this answer from Sullivan kind of really underscores just the role that Germany has in in all of these moves. Yeah, well, speaking of Nord Stream 2, there was a question on that, too. And Jake Sullivan had to once again correct this premise, which seems, again, like it is based in this anti-Biden rhetoric that isn't necessarily rooted in reality. I know you've said that, you know, that the larger goal is that the United States and our allies are stronger on the world stage and that Russia and, of course, China as well are weaker on the world stage. But how did it serve that goal to remove opposition to Nord Stream 2? Because now we're in a position where we're hoping that maybe it can be turned off if an invasion happens. But if we had held fast in opposition to Nord Stream 2, wouldn't we have denied Vladimir Putin some of the leverage that he now clearly has? Nord Stream 2 is leverage for us, not leverage for Vladimir Putin. You said turn off Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2 hasn't been turned on. There is no gas flowing through Nord Stream 2 right now, and there won't be for months, in part because of the diplomacy of the United States. And we have been absolutely clear 
that if Russia invades Ukraine, one way or the other, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. That's leverage for us that we have right now. So we intend to use that leverage, and Vladimir Putin has a choice to make. If he chooses to move on Ukraine, he will not be getting the benefits and of Nord Germany Stream 2. Has- so again, her facts are just wrong. Like, it is not on. It does not need to be turned off. It, it's, it's not on at all. Let's, let's be clear about this. This is so dumb because you can be critical of the fact that the Nord Stream 2 was approved, right? Or that there is agreement that it should be built. Like that alone is, if you don't think that should have happened, like just criticize that. Don't act like it's like gushing gas or oil or whatever, like into the homes of Germany. (laughs) Like that's not what's happening. And like that lack of, that like disrespect to the details undermines the criticism to begin with right and as jake sullivan says he's like no it's leverage for us that's how it works like that's the whole point we have this thing that russia wants and we can tell them you don't get it if you invade that is the definition of leverage and then i had to finish with this point that really really caught my interest because of how doggedly the Fox News team stuck to something that Sullivan invalidated pretty quickly. Some might say that Russia and China would look at that answer and be feel that they're in a pretty good position. Um, they came out and said, you know, we have a deep friendship. We have an uh, an unshakable alliance now. The two of us are in lockstep. What's the United, What's the White House reaction to that statement from them on Friday? Well, first, Martha, they didn't use the word alliance. Uh, they used some other phrases, but did not actually go so far as to call themselves Well, let me, let me just put Secondly, this up on the screen for you. It says, a friendship in- between the two states has no limits. There are no forbidden areas of cooperation. They also suggested that China would have Russia's back uh, on their decisions with regard to Ukraine, and the same would be true for Russia of China's decisions with regard to Taiwan. That sounds like an well, alliance. 5,000 words of that statement and 5,000 words that the, the two leaders put down on that paper. The word Ukraine does not appear, which suggests that China is not so excited about cheerleading Russia on Ukraine. So it definitely seems like McCallum here is reading somebody's summary of what the Russia-China statement was and that this summary describes an unshakable alliance that is in lockstep. China has Russia's back on decisions with regard to Ukraine. But as Sullivan says, no, the word alliance was not there. The word Ukraine was not there. Your summary, whoever wrote it, is wrong. It is just wrong on the facts, wrong on the face. But McCallum and Fox News sticks to this story and even goes back to it in the panel when we hear Jillian Turner, a Fox News correspondent, supposedly fact-check Jake Sullivan on this topic. So first you'll hear McCallum reinforcing this as she's about to turn to the panel, and then you'll hear Jillian Turner supposedly fact-checking Sullivan. So coming up next, we'll go live to Ukraine as civilians prepare themselves for war. And we'll bring in our Sunday group to discuss the growing Russia-China alliance. So yeah, you, you hear the word alliance there. 
Here's Jillian Turner. Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, tried to push back on you, Martha. He said, well, nowhere in this 5,000-page document does it call this partnership an alliance. Again, the reality is that this means whatever Russia and China wants it to mean on any given day. They might not be calling it an alliance right now, but it's an alliance. So this drove me crazy. I took a few classes in international affairs, and I know enough to know that like a lot of different domains, words have specific meanings that might mean different from the way we use them in our normal day-to-day uses. You know, we use the word alliance all the time, particularly in business, right? Businesses are always making alliances and there's plenty of businesses that have the word alliance in them. But alliance in diplomacy has a formal definition. An alliance is a formal agreement between two or more states for mutual support in case of war. It obligates allies to join forces if one or more of them is attacked by another state or coalition. And it is formalized typically, most typically, by a treaty of alliance with clauses that define, quote, causes foedris. This is Latin, of course, which are circumstances under which the treaty obligates an ally to aid a fellow member. Okay? An alliance is a formal obligation. It says, if I'm attacked, if Russia is attacked, then China has to defend Russia and vice versa. That is not what was agreed upon in that 5,000 word document. Now, this idea of an alliance is something that people at Fox News and in this business of talking about this whole Ukraine situation should be familiar with because NATO is an alliance. And what they describe all the time as Article 5 of NATO is that part that says an attack on one member is an attack on all. Okay? That is an alliance. Russia and China do not have a formalized alliance. They do not have an agreement. They could draw up an agreement like that, but they have not done so right now. And the statement doesn't mean that they are. And my sense is like this, I'm trying to think of like, what's a good analogy? It's basically like saying, oh, because a couple went to a party together, they're married. It's like, well, no, they're a couple. And even if they're engaged, they still are not legally bound to one another. That requires a marriage license, right? Short of that, there's no legal connection between them. So that's kind of what this is, right? The word alliance is like marriage. And these two countries are not married. That has not happened. That has not been put down in law. So stop with this calling it an alliance. I understand you're using it the loose way that most people use it, but this is diplomacy. We are talking about diplomacy. You are talking to an expert in diplomacy, and now you, Jillian Turner, are trying to tell him that he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about when he uses the word alliance? Give me a break. Now, in contrast to all of this foolishness that we heard on Fox News Sunday. I wanted to play just one clip because I did cover Meet the Press this week. Here's an example of a reporter who has some idea that in the world of diplomacy, things are sometimes a little different and mean a little different things than in the world of politics. This is Chuck Todd, again speaking with Jake Sullivan. But the Biden administration, at President Biden's direction, has been absolutely 
simply clear on this. Mm -hmm. If Russia invades Ukraine, one way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. And Russia understands that. We are coordinated with our allies in What's Europe the definition on that, of and invasion? that will be the reality if Russia chooses to move forward. Right. What's the definition of invasion there, though? Well, President Biden, President Biden has spoken to the fact that if a Russian tank or a Russian troop moves across the border, mm-hmm. that's an invasion. That is an invasion. And the result of that, from our perspective, would yeah. be the imposition of severe economic and consequences. The, and if the German... So there was Chuck Todd saying, hold on, you used the word invasion there as a trigger for U.S. sanctions. What do you mean by invasion? Invasion could mean a lot of things. Sometimes someone steps too close to you and you're like, this is an invasion of my personal space, right? What does invasion mean? And Chuck Todd asks it twice to try to get down to a specific definition. And one thing you might notice from the interview and the entire program of Meet the Press this week is even though there was an interview with Jake Sullivan, extensive discussions about Ukraine, China, Russia, not one time was the word alliance spoken because that's not on the table. Right. And it's, you know, (laughs) there's certain times when you can use certain words and it's not going to be a big deal. When we're talking about a potential military invasion and the roles of countries supporting other countries or, you know, allies and what allies mean, like words matter. Yes. And to use language so flippantly is just really irresponsible from a journalistic perspective. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me about how in a lot of cases, the Sunday shows have failed in defining COVID related terminology, too. Yeah, that's you know, a good point. Mm-hmm. Using the word, you know, is this one deadlier than that one or, or whatever, this strain, right? Most recently with Omicron. And it's like, well, how do you define deadlier? Is it to the individual or is it to the population? Because... Or even just like... Those two are different. Or even when you're talking about just just actual language of complicated things. One of the long-term, potential long-term impacts of COVID is the multi-system inflammatory syndrome, which is Oftentimes it goes by Miss or Miss C if you're talking about it in children. And like no one talks about, they say it's like very scary, but no one says like what it is, how it impacts children, how it impacts adults, you know, why it's scary, who it's like potentially impacting more. They'll just say, you know, long-term impacts. And it's just like, well, what is that? Right. And so it's just language matters. (laughs) It's just like, it shouldn't be such a revelation. Yeah, absolutely. And when you aren't clear about that, or you don't realize that, or you try to pretend it doesn't, then things get confused. And no one knows what you mean by invasion. And we're, we're talking past each other. And words like alliance are being bandied about when that's not really what is happening here, right? And then you start asking, well, why, why is Fox News saying that there's an alliance between Russia and China? Well, maybe they just misread things, right? And they just assume that alliance just meant they were working closely together. Or maybe there's a political motive to make it seem like there are two two seeming enemies of the United States working together and we should increase funding of the military. I don't know. Like there there are possible political reasons why you might make it seem like this is scarier than just they had a meeting and put out a statement, right? Because an alliance means a lot. I mean, that is a serious geopolitical move, but that's not what happened. And we should be we should be aware of that, just as we should be aware. And I, I credit the conversation that we heard 
earlier on on Fox News Sunday, where it was clarified that the U.S. will not be sending troops to Ukraine. That needs to be like out there a lot more in these stories about Ukraine, because it would be interesting to like do a poll of Americans right now and ask, hey, you've heard about stuff going on in Ukraine. What do you think the chances are that the U.S. will send troops there? I think a lot of people probably think it's pretty high right now. So good for clearing that up, at least. All right, Naomi, that's all I had for today. It's all the news that's fit to print. Well, there's a lot, a lot of Ukraine talk in today's episode. I think in general, we're noticing that there's a lot meatier conversations that are happening, which then leads to more robust observations and criticisms and opportunities to get better. Exactly. Now, I do want to acknowledge one thing that I thought was earth-shaking political news this week, which was the RNC saying that what happened on January 6th was legitimate political discourse. Yes, discourse. The fact that an American political party believes that is huge news that should be, like, shouted from the rooftops. But the RNC kind of walked that back, said, oh, no, we just meant the protests that happened before the raid at the Capitol, blah, blah, blah. So it's like, okay, well, blah. You said it, right? You're trying to take it back now. So I think that's part of why there was less conversation about that on the Sunday shows than I expected earlier this week. Oh, my shows had it quite a bit, talking about the walk back, talking about how kind of surprised the RNC was in terms of how pissed everybody was about it. Um, so I definitely saw it quite a bit on the shows that I covered, but I don't know. It's it's really hard covering and discussing a political party in this country that just seems okay with this. And so, I don't know, for me personally, just some weeks I can't even I can't even deal with it. Definitely understandable. So, for today's dialogue challenge, I would say just have a conversation with people around you who are less political and remind them that we're not going to send troops to Ukraine. See if they think that maybe we will because I feel like there's been a lot of hype recently around this story. And as I said, I don't think there's been a lot of clarity on that point. I think that's definitely true. I think there's probably people who don't even know an escalation in Ukraine by Russia is even happening. So just check in with the people that you that you know who might not be following this very closely. Yeah, you might be the one giving them good news that we are not going to war. That is true. In the meantime, you can send us good news at podcast at polylog.com. No bad news allowed. You can follow me at Beastidle on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Sodonaomi underscore. And of course, you can follow the show at Polylogcast. And last week, if you put off leaving a review or rating us, you can leave good news there, too. Absolutely. Good news only. (laughs) Good news only. That's our next podcast. Yeah. (laughs) I I think that's our... I don't even know what I would talk about. Good news only. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's it. (laughs) For real. That's it for real. Talk with you next week. Bye. Bye. (laughs)